Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Handwoven, Piecework, Spinoff, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Merrow. This season is sponsored by Webs. Webs, America's yarn store, is your source for everything you need for your next weaving project. Webs carries a wide selection of yarns, looms, tools, and accessories, and you can save up to 25% every day with the Webs discount. Visit yarn.com for more info. My guest is Eileen Lee. Eileen has contributed knitting designs to Piecework and Piecework Special Issues. In the summer 2021 issue, she wrote about her Hawaiian grandmother's efforts to preserve traditional Hawaiian quilting. So Eileen, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I've worked with you in spinning and weaving over the years, but I didn't realize until recently that you have an interest in Hawaiian quilting. Can you tell me about that? Yes. My grandmother, uh, well, both my parents are Hawaiian, but my grandmother on my father's side was the Hawaiian quilter. And she was at a very young age. She was taken out of school, I believe in the ninth grade. And then she started quilting Hawaiian quilts with her grandmother. And uh, that was just something she did. And as she got older, she realized that the Hawaiian, the Hawaiian people used to not want to share their quilts. And sometimes they even burned them after they made them. So my grandmother realized that they were going to, this art was going to die. Um, and all the people that worked on it were going to die off and the art was going to die. So her ambition in her life was to share the, the techniques and her patterns and so that's what she did. She spent over 40 years teaching people how to make Hawaiian quilts and um, sharing all her patterns and stuff like that. So it was over 40 years that she did that. She received several awards for her quilts. There's all kinds of best housekeeping magazines, that magazines like that, that they would have like the 150 quilt of the year. And she would be in it. And there would be... Uh, several magazines like that and one particular quilt a lot of times would be in it so that's what she did she traveled all over the different islands all over the mainland um, she traveled to Japan one of her quilts is um, in Japan so uh, one of her main quilts is in the Bishop Museum in Hawaii so she's very well known my niece got married a couple years ago and it was at a very famous building and all those ladies that worked in that building knew knew my grandmother by her name so she's pretty well known out there she ended up going back to school she had seven children and she ended up going back to school and she graduated from her with her oldest daughter so that was ended up being a big uh, newspaper article and it was um it was really a nice article she's so young and her daughter was so young and a mother of seven kids graduates with her oldest daughter. And then later on, she graduated from college, and she ended up teaching English. Her main thing to do was to, uh, after all of that, she wanted to write a book. And um, she ended up getting Alzheimer's. And so that book, that book didn't happen. But she was, she was pretty much ahead of her time, you know, wanting to share this. And I have that quote. <laughs> that she um, that she wrote, and a lot of people knew 
this quote was, um, we the Hawaiian people have made a big mistake. We've hung onto our quilt patterns and we've given away our land. We should have done the opposite. If we had, quilting would not be such a dying art and we would all be walking around with rent receipts books today. So <laughs> that's wonderful. A lot of the articles that she wrote, that quote would be in them. So that's really the story about her. She was pretty amazing. She taught me how to quilt. She made a simple little quilt when I was about maybe 12 years old or so. And she just cut up the fabric and we both worked on it. You can tell her stitches from my stitches very clearly. Her stitches are so perfect. But it's, I still have that piece today. I mean, it's over 40 years old. Well, it's older than that. So uh, I still have that. And my aunt, her daughter, took over and taught quilting and is still quilting today. She's about 93 years old, but she's still quilting. What is it that makes Hawaiian quilting different from other sorts of just ordinary patchwork applique that you might see anywhere in the, the mainland, I guess, or yeah, anywhere yeah. else in the United States? It, it's very different. It looks very, very different. For one thing, the motifs are very uh, Polynesian looking, I guess you could say. They're flowers or they're a certain type of feather ornaments, Hawaiian royalty ornaments or things like that. So for one thing, that's, that's real obvious. And then I think um, they call it echo quilting. So that means that you stitch the motif on and then you stitch around the motif and around the motif and it kind of gives you an echo type of, of look. The original quilts were only two colors. So the background was usually white and the motif was a solid color. So never a printed fabric or anything like that. White and red, white and green or whatever. So they do look quite a bit different and they're all done by hand the whole thing no machine at all <laughs> the scale of the ones i've seen is really huge too so none of this i'll do a tiny block and there'll be 40 of them on this quilt it's one huge motif yes she she always did king size um, quilts all the quilts that she made that i have seen uh, are all king size so she made quilts for each one of her kids She's got seven kids. Uh, my father gave me his, which I'm so glad he did. <laughs> I have a, a sister and two brothers, and I'm glad he gave me the quilt. <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's a king size um, quilt. So it's, like you said, the motifs are big. The quilts are big. That's amazing. I, I, I don't think my grandparents ever even slept in a king size bed. They... <laughs> They were, all the beds were smaller. They had like full size beds forever. So the idea of a king size bed yeah. that you were going to make a quilt for. I know. And she was born, what, in 1906. I mean, where, where she, maybe her beginning quilts weren't king size. I don't know. But I know all her quilts that we see now and the quilt that's in the Bishop Museum and the quilt that's in Japan are king size. <laughs> so she learned from her grandmother were other people learning from their grandmothers at the same time? I mean, I'm just curious about the legacy of these. I think so. I think everybody was learning from their family. You know, so it, it, it just that they never wanted to share them. They learned from their grandmothers and mothers, and it went down in the family, but they, they wouldn't share it outside of the family at all. And, you know, it's, 
I think there's a lot of different um, groups of people that do that. I think the American Indians do that. They want to share their basket weaving and things with the other tribes. So I don't think it's that uncommon, um, but it's. Uh, but she thought it was not a good thing. <laughs> well, that's the sort of thing where one person intervening can really make a big difference. Yes. Yeah, this one woman. This one woman made a big difference, or else they would be gone by now. They definitely would be gone. I mean, they've been maybe copied, I guess you would say, from, you know, coming from the Philippines or coming from China or something. And, and they, they like, make – and so they're really inexpensive. You see them in the stores in Hawaii. They're made, uh, some of the motifs are printed fabrics. Um, so they've, you know – They've done a lot of that kind of stuff. But when you go to Hawaii and you want to see a real Hawaiian quilt, you go to some of the um, fancy museums and places like that, and you'll see the real thing. Cutting out a motif that size must be a challenge. Well, you, you cut it. You, um, it's kind of like when you made snowflakes when you were a kid. You, you, you have a, a piece of paper, and you fold it in half and then you fold it in fourths and then you fold it in eighths and then that's how you make the motif. You put it on the fabric and then you cut that and you open it up and you've got you've got the motif. So that's how it's made. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty simple simple things. And it actually was the missionaries that came to Hawaii that taught them how to quilt. Um, They were teaching them how to quilt their way of quilting, then the Hawaiian people started doing their own their own thing. But yeah, it was the missionaries who taught them the original way to quilt, how to stitch, and um, you know do that all that stuff with fabric. Sometimes old quilts are using little scraps of fabric, but yeah. you can't use a scrap of fabric to make a king size quilt of <laughs> one motif. No, no, it's a it's a huge piece of fabric and I'm you know I'm not sure if the missionaries taught them you know actually blanket size quilts or if they were making smaller pieces I have a feeling they were making smaller pieces like pillows and things like smaller fabric because the, the missionaries brought the fabric over and would share the fabric with them and I have a feeling that it was smaller when they were teaching them how to do it so the window when this was developed and, and passed around and, and taught within families was not all that big then. From the missionaries to your grandmother's lifetime, it was 150, 200 years, right. 150 years probably. Yeah, about 150 years. Yeah, you're right. You're right. To have something so big come up and then almost be, you know, be on the, on the verge of disappearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, you know, the missionaries taught him a lot of things. Of course, they they taught them religion, and they there's a lot of negative ends about the missionaries as well. But they did do some good things, like the the quilts. They also wrote down their language, so that their language would not disappear. So afterwards, they didn't want them to speak it. <laughs> but there were missionaries that wrote down their language for them, and so they're lucky for that. You did a project for Piecework Online that was that was about breadfruit and it used a Hawaiian word. Ulu. That was Ulu. 
So that some of the Hawaiian language is incorporated in that as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ulu means breadfruit. <laughs> I know such a small little word. Ulu means breadfruit. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's one of the simplest quilts to make because there's not so many sh- sharp edges and stuff, more curved edges. So that, that was known to be the, the pattern to use for your first pattern when you're learning how to do quilting. So that wasn't the one she taught me on, though. <laughs> I, I don't think so. Don't you were advanced. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. I was 12. In the blood. <laughs> so when she thought that it would be a good idea to teach people, who did she start teaching? She started teaching mostly Hawaiian people on, on, the, on the different islands. I remember her telling a story one time that this is what her day would look like. She would go to the park or go to the beach. One day the park, one day the beach. They would have a big group of women and they would all be quilting and she would be showing them everything on how to quilt. Then they would go have lunch. (laughs) Then they would come back and they would play ukulele, sing, dance, and then they would go back to their quilting. And then maybe about four or five o'clock they'd go home. That sounds wonderful. It does that sound like a wonderful day? Yes, we should all be so lucky. <laughs> but yeah, I think she was mostly she was mostly speaking. Uh, I mean, teaching Hawaiian people. But then, it, then you know, the other other types of people wanted to learn. Any all the tourists wanted to learn, and so she would teach anybody who wanted to learn. She wanted to teach them. Was she aware of the quilting interest? in other parts of the world and other parts of the United States? Or was she really focused mostly on the kind of quilting that she did as part of her family? I think she mostly concentrated on her type of quilting. You know, I actually don't know that. Absolutely. And probably nobody could tell me that. Um, But I, I would bet that she concentrated on Hawaiian quilting. And again, trying to save the art. That was her that was her main thing. I'm just trying to picture if she was, if her work was in these magazines about the best quilts of the year. Yeah. And and I assume that she would have gotten a copy of the magazine. And, and what does she think of all of these other different kinds of quilts? Yeah. And I don't know. I found additional magazines while I was writing this article that my aunt didn't even know about. So I sent the, the pictures of those magazines to her. There was... Um, a mag- one magazine that was done that my grandfather entered her in it, but she never saw it because she died right before that magazine came out. So he helped her, too, with the traveling and the, um, you know, getting some of the things published for her. He was an electrician in um, Pearl Harbor. That's what, that's what he did. But he helped her a lot also. And so your aunt took up the mantle and continued teaching? Yes. And she taught all over the place, just like her mother did. And she taught, um, she continued teaching me, my sister, my cousins, you know, everybody that she could possibly teach. She she taught for quite a while, too. And she's still quilting today. Is she still in Hawaii? No. She she right now lives in Washington with her, her youngest son, Washington State. But she helped me a lot writing this article because I didn't want anything to be uh, incorrect. So I'd always run things past her to make sure that, uh, because she remembers everything. And 
And sometimes she would get irritated with me because I wouldn't say the Hawaiian words right. <laughs> I wouldn't say them correctly. And, <laughs> and so she would help me out with that. But, you know, they're that generation, my dad's generation, my dad's 95, she's 93. That's, that's the oldest generation when they were still speaking the language and, and stuff. Although they're, they're teaching it in school now, so that's good. This makes me want to pick up a needle and thread and some scissors. <laughs> do you do any of any Hawaiian quilting yourself, or is it something that you sort of have on the back burner? I have on the back burner. I have it. I have a whole quilt, king-size quilt, uh, you know, all basted and ready. And I've done some needlework on it, some quilting on it. But, you know, it's huge. That's a huge quilt to be working on, if you can imagine. Um, and I think she had like those wooden horses in her house that the quilt would be on. I remember my dad saying he used to, when he was a little kid, he would play underneath them. I think her whole living room was probably the quilt, you know? <laughs> yes. When people were quilting together, were they all working on one quilt, like a quilting bee, or were they working on individual projects? Do you know? I think they were working on individual projects. That's a lot of fabric. <laughs> that's a lot of fabric. Um, that's a lot of that quilting material, too. Um, but yeah, I, I'm pretty sure they were working on, on uh, individual. That's the way my aunt teaches. And I'm, I'm sure that's the way my grandmother taught, too. And that's, you know, that's the way we learned, my, my sister and I, my cousins. I hadn't really thought about that. If you are quilting by hand, that's, an, that's, just, that's a heavy piece of fabric to hold mm -hmm. and stitch into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not bad. Um, you know, my my grandmother never used a quilting hoop, I think you call it, but my aunt does. I asked her the other day. I was kind of surprised. She does parts of the quilt. She'll use the hoop. So when you put something in a hoop, you know, you make the whole project smaller that you can work on because you're just working on that small part. And when you're doing echo quilting, you're, you know, you're you're working on a small part, but you're working on a big motif. Yeah, it's getting out. It's coming out, 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 just like an echo, just like a water, water when you throw the, the rock in it, you know. <laughs> and since Hawaii is made up of islands, I love that idea of the waves, the yeah. waves of the stitching. Maybe that's what it should be called, not echo, but the waves. You must be so proud of her. I, you know, when I started writing that article, my father just moved into a home. And when I was packing up his house, I found some stuff in there about her. I mean, I, I knew a little bit about her. I was a kid when she was still alive. I remember her. But these articles, it was a woman who wrote a college paper about my grandmother. And, and it's, a, it's old. You can tell it's an old typewriter and old yellow paper. And uh, she wrote a, a, an article about her. And that's what made me interested in how I can write something about her and work with my aunt while my aunt is still alive. That's what made me think about it. And as I got deeper and deeper and deeper into it, um, it just got better and better and better. I, I actually was just going to write this for my, my family. That was my original idea. And then I thought, I wonder... I wonder if Kate would be interested in this for piecework. <laughs> I'm really glad you shared it. I love it. And she was. It was really funny. She said, oh, Eileen, I just love it. And I love knowing more about you <laughs> because, you know, nobody would think I'm Hawaiian because I don't really look Hawaiian. I think I surprised her with that. <laughs> 
but they, this is the first article I've ever written that's not something I made. Hmm. You know, it's it's something that somebody else made, and I'm writing about them. And it, it took me about a year to write it, um, but it was enjoyable to write. It was it was exciting to write it, and my cousins, oh, my cousins and relatives and. They were so excited when they uh, got the magazine because I sent them all the magazines and they were just really excited. And they remember things when they were kids and they talked about, they talked about, um, you know, what, when she was working on those quilts or what it was like growing up in that house when they were kids. And uh, it really brought back a lot of memories for them. And a lot of them called me up. One of my cousins sent me money. <laughs> she gave me a $20 bill and said, I want this to pay for some of the posting because I know you're sending this out to my cousin, to our cousin, and I know you're paying for it. And I know if I sent you a check, you wouldn't cash it. So I'm, I want you to keep this cash. <laughs> and it's on way that's showing support for, you know, wanting to be part of the effort. Yeah. They were very, very supportive. They were. They really, really enjoyed reading something like that. Mm-hmm. I always thought, well, maybe I'll expand on that for my family and just write a little bit more about her. Although, I have to admit, I was a little worried about how much they would keep in the article, you know, because I know you're supposed to be writing about the quilt, right? But they didn't. They kept all that stuff in about my grandmother, which I was so happy that they did that because that's the whole story. It's a balance of learning about the textile and, and the technique and the people who, who do it. And when people think about researching for an article, sometimes they think about having to go to a museum and, mm-hmm. you know, look in the archives. But you just worked on your family connections and mm-hmm. learning from the people that you already know. I called, uh, I talked to a couple of people at the museums in Hawaii, you know, a couple of those people, and they helped me out with some some information. My aunt helped me the most, I think, and the information that I found at my dad's house, you know, between all of that. My my uncles and aunts, they're all dead except for the one aunt. And my dad's not able to, he's not functioning brain-wise, so he wasn't able. Although, I went to see him after the article came out, and I read the article to him. He was wide awake, and he, and he was with me the whole time I read it, and he was really very happy. It's amazing how textiles and family stories can really connect us that way. Yeah. So you mentioned that Hawaiian quilting isn't part of your active textile practice, but you're bringing people together to work on textiles in a different way. Is that right? Yes. I um, I have my own studio now. So I, I teach uh, weaving, spinning, dyeing, and knitting. I've been teaching knitting forever and um, for, for a really long time. And so now I'm teaching weaving and spinning and dyeing. I used to, when my husband and I moved to Grass Valley, we had a two-year-old son. And I worked and managed a yarn store that opened up here. And that store was open for about 11 years. And I managed the store. I taught knitting. I designed. um, And I just, right before we closed, I just started teaching um, rigid heddle weaving. So that just started. And then after 11 years, things got slowed down, and um, we closed the store. Once we closed the store, then I opened up my business. And, um, you know, I had to do a bunch of things. Like I had to come up with a name. I had to come up with a 
business license, location, website, cards, logo, <laughs> all that. But the location ended up being my own studio, my off my own house. So that worked out good. So I don't have to, you know, rent a building or I don't have to go anywhere. So that's what I'm teaching now. We have knit nights once a week. This is before COVID. We have Saturday get-togethers um, that we do. We have dye days. Some of our dye days um, during the summer usually, and they're out in my back porch. And for a small fee, just to pay for some of the materials and dyes and stuff, we dye all day. We're just dyeing. And especially indigo dyeing takes a long time because you put in a dip and then you have to wait and let the oxygen get to it and see how dark it gets. And, you know, so it, some people bring their spinning wheels, they're sewing, they're knitting, and we do that and uh, dye all day. It's, it's a lot of fun. Dying with indigo is something that really seems to suck people in. Yeah. You start thinking, what else can I put in there? My family was afraid I was going to dye everything they owned. I was looking for T-shirts. I said, come on, you guys, you must have some white T-shirts around here that I could dye. <laughs> I was dyeing lace curtains. I was dyeing all kinds of, let me see, um, sheets for the bed, pillowcases, and lots of shirts. But I did get into, you weave a fabric, and you have these huge floats in them, and purposely, and the floats are a different color. And the yarn that you're using is white on white, except for those floats. Then when you take it off the loom, you pull the threads from those floats, and it all crunches in, and that's what you throw in the dye pot. And so that all those uh, crunchiness causes the resist. And then when you're when you're done weaving, then you pull that out, and you get these beautiful designs. So that was. <laughs> That yes, fun to teach. I think so. I've heard of that as as I think woven shibori is yes. that yeah 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 yeah. It does sound like a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a it's a I people get so excited about indigo. Well, they can feel my excitement talking about it and showing them how it works because it's kind of like a miracle thing. You know, you pull it out of the dye pot and it's lime green, and then you uh, let the oxygen get to it and it slowly turns blue. It's it's pretty amazing. People people had no idea how indigo works. They just knew that they had blue jeans and they faded a lot. And, you know. I was going to ask about your, your sheets and, and pillowcases. When I've done indigo dyeing, I'm afraid I've had a bit of a problem with crocking, with having the blue rub off. Did you have that with your sheets? The, what causes the crocking is if you dye, have too much dye on the product. So the key is to have a small amount of dye, bring it out, let the oxygen turn it blue. If it's not as dark as you want it to be, then you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again until you get the color you want, versus putting a bunch of dye in the pot, putting your product in there, and letting it sit there for 30 minutes or whatever. That's going to crock, because indigo is a, um, a pigment dye. It sits on the surface. So that's what causes the crocking. And indigo always has a little bit of crocking, but it shouldn't have a lot if it's done correctly. Dips, lots of little dips. Last time I was working with something that I had dyed with indigo, my hands were blue and it was yeah. it was not a fun experience. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's pretty ugly. I don't like gloves, but, but yeah, it goes away. You wash your hair a couple of times and it goes away. 
That's true. That's a good point. <laughs> so what other sorts of things do you experiment with in your studio with, with dyeing and weaving? I like working with different structures. I'm not the one that follows directions all the time. So I work with a lot of different structures. Um, I like bright, bright colors. I tend to use a black weft a lot of times because I think it enhances the colors more. And small sets. But I will say, the best fabric I ever made was plain weave. And it's plain weave set at 42 ends per inch. And it is the most drapable fabric, the most beautiful fabric I've ever made. So after saying all that about structures, my favorite fabric, I think, the best fabric I ever made was plain weave. <laughs> <laughs> and, and um, you know, I just plan, I hope to just do every structure I can possibly do in my lifetime. And, and a lot of painted warps with them. Mm. I like the idea of doing painted warps in all kinds of different structures. I, I did one recently that was a deflected double weave. And it was a painted warp and it had some solids. And it was just beautiful. How do you approach warp painting? Well, I paint these myself. So, um, again, it's just like working in my back porch again. I just make the warps. It's Sarah Lamb who taught me how to do that. And, you know, that's how I do it. I warp front to back when I work with painted warps. So I, I have the reed on the table, and I'll spread out the painted warp and all the, the slots that I want it to go in. And then I'll bring in another painted warp, spread that out in the, in the slots I left blank, then get it on the, on the loom. But that's really the only time I warp front to back is when I'm doing painted warps. I can't think about how you could do it any other way. So speaking of indigo and blue jeans, I know that it's not the only thing they did, but you spent a long time working for a very famous indigo company yes. in its own way. Yes. In the 80s, like the mid 80s and 90s, I worked for Levi Strauss and Company in San Francisco. I lived in the East Bay, so I commuted to San Francisco and I was in the merchandising area uh, originally. So in those days, and I'd say the 80s, they used to have a program, a training program, and they would pick people that they wanted to do this program with. And it would be a program that would teach everything you can possibly learn about fibers, fabrics, production, dyeing. And they would send, I say we because it was me and another woman, they would fly us all over the United States on all the different mills, the, the spinning mills, the fabric mills, the dyeing mills, the washing mills, all these different uh, manufacturing locations, mostly in the South, and we would just learn everything we possibly could. We took tons of classes on everything to do with fabric, everything to do with indigo, and manufacturing jeans as well. And then, you know, I just worked myself up and in the management and then became big manager <laughs> in the corporate world. You said merchandising. What exactly does merchandising mean? Merchandising is another word of saying how the product looks, how, how the end product looks. Hmm. You own that product from the time that it's just very minutely designed or thought of to how it looks on the floor on the store. And it's how all of it goes together. So on this particular product, say like men's jeans came up with um, that brown cotton. What was her name? 
Sally Fox? Yes, Sally Fox. They got a hold of Sally Fox and they did a small program with her on brown cotton. So all the jeans and all the jackets and all the vests and all the skirts and everything that went with it was all this beautiful brown and natural cotton. And they did a whole presentation at like a Macy's or something like that. And the, and they owned that whole part of the store where they can merchandise their product to have it look the way they wanted it to look. And that's the only way that it would have been sold. So that's kind of a, a brief example of what merchandising is. That's one example. But it, it's really, we would have to go to stores and work with buyers and sell our ideas. And the ideas would um, be a number of things, not just one gene. It would be jackets and shirts and all kinds of things that go with it. And it's all got to go together. It's all got to be bought somewhat together and be on the storefront together. So it sounds like it's kind of, in a way, a combination of design and marketing and sales. Yes, you're right. And at that time, I didn't do it all, but I was responsible for designing of the product. Although I, I had designers, you know, that did it. And then merchandising it, working with the stores to sell it. And I didn't work with all the stores. We have a huge sales force, but I would work with the main ones, the big guys. And then producing it for a price that would be, you know, affordable. Sometimes that would be in the Orient. Sometimes that would, a lot of times it's in the U.S. if it's any kind of uh, denim product. But the shirts and things like that were, were not in the U.S. So I was responsible for that as well. And then finance, how much money you're going to make or not. And, and the bottom line, you know, there is a report that we had called the IPS, Inventory Production and Sales. And that was the report we had to put out every month to see how we did what our inventory was, what our production was, and how much we sold, and how much money we made. So you said jeans in the U.S. Why jeans mostly in the U.S.? Well, at that time, we had all, we had the factories. We had the, Levi had the factories to, to make them. That's what they did. The whole idea when Levi first started was to make jeans in the U.S. So in those days, the 80s and the early 90s, we were still producing in, in the U.S. and still had a lot of factories here. Over 30 years, you must have seen a lot of changes in the way fabrics were made in the U.S. and around the world. It's like this country can afford to pay for things, denim, jeans, or stuff that come from the U.S. anymore. It's, it's so expensive to produce, you know, products like that. And your competitors can produce it by doing it offshore and have wonderful products. You know, the one thing about having... Um, a lot of production in the U.S., and Levi is a huge, huge company. It doesn't move. It's, there's not much flexibility in, in a factory. So if you want to add a little tuck here or a little pleat here, oh, my gosh, it's, it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. So it's a big machine. And so there, is, there also is not any more – there isn't any flexibility. So when the market started changing – and people started buying other people's jeans, especially men's. I mean, men's jeans is what Levi owned, the whole men's jeans market. That's that's huge. Women's is much smaller. Women's market and everything they do is much smaller compared to men's. And children's is even smaller. But when they started getting slow in men's jeans, then that's a pretty serious thing. 
and um, all these genes that people were in, kind of like indie genes, you know, they're doing their own genes, they cost $80, and it doesn't matter because they're unique. They, that, gen, that next generation didn't want to no longer wear their father's genes or their grandfather's genes. And so business just got slower and slower, and, you know, the fabrics weren't all the time twiddles anymore. They were making genes uh, out of, they call it square weave, but it's canvas, you know, different types of, of plain weave. But it's indigo. It's still indigo, but it's not denim. It's not twill. So the market changed a lot. We just couldn't move that fast. I don't know if Levi has any more factories in the U.S. anymore. I, I don't really know. And so now you have the ultimate small-scale, air quotes, factory, where you can make any kind of tucker <laughs> pleat you want. And I think I think of some of the people in Levi that I used to work with knew that what I was doing, they would just be laughing their heads off that I'm actually weaving. <laughs> 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 because we used to go to, they used to go to factories and see weaving in a huge scale, you know, a whole room full of looms loud really loud and yes and you're controlling your own indigo it's not rubbing off on your pants that's right that's right i know i know how to do that because they taught me i know uh some sewing techniques that i learned from um from levi of what not to do because the, the sewing operators were paid by the piece so this one operator might just be doing this one scene zoom zoom over and over and over again some of the things that they would get in trouble for is if they didn't change their needles all the time. Oh, yeah. Because that would have to, that would make them stop, right, and, mm -hmm. and do that so they would lose time. But you can tell on a pair of jeans if their needles are dull after they're washed. And then uh, something else, what was it? Oh, yeah. Have you ever had a pair of jeans where the leg twists, especially when bell bottoms are around? when the, the leg will twist and all of a sudden your front seam is almost in the center of your leg, mm -hmm. that's caused by an operator, the seam from one end to the other is not matching and so they're stretching it so that it matches. Oh my goodness. Seam. So that's what will happen. Your your leg will move toward the center of your leg. <laughs> <laughs> all of these secrets. <laughs> But Levi was, if you, if you sew, the way the factory is made up is exactly the way we sew when we just do one little pattern. It's just, they might be making 150 jeans at the same time. The pattern pieces go on top of the fabric that's put in a location that's put on by these big forklifts. So the fabric is, you know, four or five feet high. And then this big machine comes around and cuts around the pattern pieces cuts the notches including the notches oh. and, and everything and it's just just exactly like the way we sew it's just in a big a much bigger way so the weaving is totally different but the sewing is similar yes the weaving is you know the weaving is uh is huge you know when you're when you're at a weaving factory i mean there must be you know 150 looms or more in that room and it's loud really loud with all the beating you know and I think when you when the shuttle goes across it's it's loud just with the shuttle it's similar to the way we weave it's it's the same 
but it's just bigger. The looms are huge. The, the bobbins are huge. Everything is just bigger and loud. I just thought it's so interesting that you said that, you know, men's jeans declined because people didn't want to wear their grandfather's jeans. But you're preserving your grandmother's quilts. Oh. <laughs> so we've been talking about, you know, sort of where you've come from and where you are now. What are you thinking about doing next textile-wise? I think I want to explore more weaving, like I mentioned before. I want to do every structure I possibly can. And then I want to do all those structures and painted warps, probably. I definitely would like to write more articles. That's something I really enjoy doing. So I'd like to continue with that. I'd like to do some programs with local guilds. and then. I want to continue teaching because I enjoy teaching so much. I love to see people get excited about what I get excited about. You know, it's 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 fun. I've always I've always liked that. I think I get that from my grandmother. Um, and then I'd like to spin more. You know, we just got a border collie puppy. <laughs> I don't know what we were thinking, but I haven't been able to spin much because of him. So I'd like to start spinning again, and I'd like to start. I've always had projects in mind to spin. And uh, and weave with. And then I, w- I just would love to be around people again. So I think that's what I'd like to do. <laughs> that sounds like a great plan. Well, thanks so much, Eileen. I really appreciate it. Thanks for spending time with me. Well, thank you very much for having me.
Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.